This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with John McCaslin, a journalist, author, TV commentator, and radio personality. John covered Washington for three decades, much of it as a nationally syndicated columnist, TV commentator, and top-ranking radio news host. Over the years, John interviewed just about everybody, from U.S. presidents and leading lawmakers to Hollywood celebrities and sports figures. These days, however, John has taken another direction. He's the editor of the weekly newspaper in rural Rappahannock County, Virginia. We'll talk with John about his career and his advice for young journalists, and we'll get his views on some of the challenges facing news media today, particularly in rural areas. John, you started your journalism career in a small town in Montana. Then you quickly worked your way up to the top tier of Washington journalism. And now, although I know you have a few fish to fry, you're back in a small town editing a weekly newspaper. I want to ask you about this most recent career transition, but first, can you tell us about what drew you to journalism in the first place and how you got started out there in Montana? My, um, the first book I wrote, uh, which was called Inside the Beltway, uh, subtitle Offbeat Stories, Scoops, and Shenanigans from Around the Nation's Capital, uh, I paid tribute from whatever, you know, that, that for whatever that is worth coming from, from me uh, to my next-door neighbor when I was a, a young boy growing up on the streets of Old Town Alexandria, which geographically used to be part of uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, Nancy Ann Blunt used to always tell me when I was 9, 10, 11 years old that I would be a reporter one day, a newspaper reporter, because I was always on my bicycle chasing an ambulance or a fire truck or mm-hmm. a police car and then coming back to these quaint streets of Old Town where all the townhouses are next to each other. It was an incredible place to grow up. And I would uh, be the town crier and tell everybody what had happened. And um, then, you know, I, I also credit uh, my, my Catholic uh, school nun, Sister Marie de Carmel, who happened to also teach Pat Buchanan of uh, conservative uh, fame, uh, working for several White Houses uh, over the years. And um, she was a wonderful English teacher, and I had a great uh, priest who was... Uh, uh, my writing teacher in high school, and then uh, some wonderful college professors. And, uh, and then uh, as soon as I got out of uh, the university, um, I, I, after uh, struggling a little bit to, uh, to find a job, uh, landed uh, both newspaper and broadcast uh, in Montana, as you pointed out, a little town called Kalispell, Montana, that's now been taken over by Californians next to Glacier National Park. So it's, uh, it's grown uh, by leaps and bounds, but it was a, it was a great place to, uh, to get your feet wet for four years before coming back to the nation's capital. So you had a, maybe a lifelong inclination and passion, and then you got 
grounded in, in small-town journalism, which I think is such a good way. But pretty soon, you plunged back into Washington journalism, and you made your way pretty quickly to the, to the top. Did your head I, spin I, when you got back to town? Yeah, it, it, it was amazing. I, I left Montana uh, for personal reasons. My mother uh, was too young when she uh, came down with cancer. And um, I, I never wanted to leave. I mean, you're in the Rocky Mountains. You're a young man in your 20s. You're a big fish in a small pond. I was news director and anchor uh, for an entire uh, Montana broadcast network. I was working for UPI broadcast writing. And, um, you know, as, as, as the gentleman I worked with at the White House uh, as a reporter uh, in the mid-1980s under Ronald Reagan's administration, uh, told uh, his bosses when, when uh, he helped me get the job, in a small environment, in a, in a small beat like Montana, you, you, learn it, you get to learn it all. The city council meetings are more difficult in a place like Montana or here in Virginia to cover than the White House. Uh, and I found it uh, not too difficult when I became a White House correspondent in 1984, given uh, the, the pavement pounding you have to do in an in a environment like Montana. Everything at the White House, for instance, is, instance, is transcribed and handed to you within five minutes of any commander-in-chief opening his mouth. You don't need a tape recorder anymore. You do not even need to take notes. You'll see the, the White House press corps uh, sitting in the briefing room taking notes. What they're basically doing, if not doodling, is, is writing down the time of when there was a good sound bite from the, from the dais, from the podium, and then they can go back and make it easy to listen to the tape because everything is handed to you. So... Uh, so I never discount anything a reporter does in a smaller uh, market um, because, again, as, as Jerry O'Leary, who I learned uh, much of journalism from, always said, you know, that, that, that's, that's where you learn it all. Well, you've feels like you've learned it all. You've written books, and you've had a big-time syndicated column, and you've done major TV, and, and a, you were a top national radio news guy. But now you've um, taken a, a new direction. What's it like to, to go back to a small town and, and, and start in a place where nobody's recording the comments, where you have to do it all? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. It's, it's very difficult. I'm, I'm getting ready in the next week uh, Halloween specifically to turn 60 years of age and I thought after 35 years uh, 36 years basically um, in most of it in Washington DC uh, that you know I had done my share um, and I've always loved the mountains which uh, uh, goes back to Montana and just one hour outside of Washington DC is a very special county uh, adjacent to Shenandoah National Park and I've had a weekend house here, and I thought, okay, it's time. It's time to move back. Uh, there was an opportunity for investment uh, in a restaurant. People thought I was crazy. Uh, I'm still the half owner of the restaurant. I uh, immersed myself uh, after all this journalism, although I was still writing on the side, uh, into um, how to how to how to greet people, see people, and carry hamburgers back that aren't cooked well enough. Um, 
And it was at the beginning of this year, in fact, 2017, that uh, I walked down the hill, a very small town, the county seat of Washington, Virginia, the first ever Washington, and they call it Little Washington uh, in deference to Big Washington, 60, 70 miles away, and uh, became the editor, in short, uh, of the Rappahannock newspaper. And I'm telling you what, you are up all night writing, um, you're you're basically working alone in terms of, of of the reporting and the writing itself. We do have columnists. We have one office manager and one publisher and me, and then we have one stringer who will cover some meetings. So you find yourself. We have a murder this week, the first murder in the county in several years, uh, which I'm writing about. You're doing candidate profiles from the school board and the county supervisor. We have a county supervisor form of government here. And uh, there's an election coming up, like uh, many places around the country, on November 7th. So I'm doing profiles, which I've been writing all weekend, a lot of transcribing. Nobody's doing that for you like they did at the White House and continue to do. So, so it's different. The salary is back to, uh, to where it was, uh, to be specific again, uh, back in the 1980s. So it's a trade-off, and I've had this conversation with many people that, that want to escape the city and come to a place like this. There are going to be trade-offs uh, to, live, to live in a beautiful, uh, slower-paced environment, and, uh, and I'm enjoying it very much. You know, I, I worked very closely with uh, the late Tony Snow, and we did a lot of broadcasting together, and actually Tony worked with me as the editorial page editor of, of the Washington Times when I was there. And um, Tony always spoke about there's nothing as important as the written word. And I think once we, we get that into, to, um, you know, a, 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 a daily, uh, it's, like, it's like writing. I felt all weekend like I was writing term papers all weekend. It never ends, but it gets into your blood, and uh, it never leaves. Well, I want to talk about writing in, in just a second. But first, I, I have to mention, since you were too polite to do it, that the, the restaurant where you're a half-owner is Tula's, right, in, yes. in uh, Little Washington. And it's a charming, friendly place with good food. And so it's a... There's a, a lot of charm in that town and a lot of visit, reason visitors are coming out there. Now, now back to the topic of, of writing after I've inserted a little um, review there. Writing seems to be a theme in your career. You've done so many different things. And when I talk to journalism students today, they're developing amazing skills with video editing and all kinds of things. Does writing still matter like it used to for people who are interested in journalism? Uh, I think it does, um, because so much now is Internet-based just in the last decade. Uh, you know, we used to say when we were in print, and again, I've done all the mediums, but when, when, when I was in print, having come from broadcast, uh, I would be, uh, you know, surprised to when, I, when you're working alongside, let's just take the White House, for instance. You know, there's about 70 full-time correspondents that are there. There's, there's more people accredited to the White House, but you're working alongside and sitting alongside. For instance, my desk was with CNN, next to CNN. And 
they don't do much of their writing, the correspondence that you see on TV. They've got writers to do all that back at their, their headquarters. Um, they have producers next to them that do all the writing. Basically, what they do is go out, and now in this day and age, when you see somebody doing a stand-up on the White House lawn, they're reading a teleprompter. So they don't have to write a word, and many of them couldn't put a sentence together uh, if, if uh, they tried. And so I think it is very important because now, as you, and we can get into this, when you go into journalism today as a student, um, or, you know, early in your career, your profession, what they're looking for is somebody, as you point out, Bev, that can take a tripod, mount a camera on it, and do a stand-up by themselves, as well as write a story that's going to appear within the next hour on the Internet. And it better be good, because chances are they want to get it on, they want to beat the competition. That will never go away. Um, but there's going to be very few editors, copy editors, as we used to call them, that will go through the copy and read it. For instance, here at this small newspaper where I work, um, I have to read my stories over three times because nobody else is reading them. And that's bad. Somebody needs to be looking over your shoulder. You know, the typos and everything will show up usually uh, given the, the technology today. But sentence structure is very important. And, uh, and I take much pride in that, and I, I hope this newspaper has, has improved. We've had very good people at this newspaper. Um, everybody's got a Washington, D.C. background from the Washington Post, Washington Times, uh, that has worked here uh, of late. So um, I think we, we've brought a lot of credibility to the paper, and I think uh, you see that in its pages. It's, it is kind of scary to think about being out there without an editor, even great writers need editors, which is why newspapers have had that structure. But there's a lot about journalism that strikes me as scary these days. Journalists are under a lot of threat. The whole idea of the First Amendment sometimes is under a lot of threat. You want to comment on some of the challenges that, that, that journalists are facing today, particularly on the national scene? Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we have uh, we have a a president of the United States. We, this this has astounded me uh, ever since last November, and I don't. I have never taken political sides, and I've been proud of that. Even the Washington Times, when I wrote my syndicated column, it was picked up by the Los Angeles Times. I never opined in my column. It was a daily column. I, I let people in my column. Uh, state their opinion, but but I very rarely. Sometimes you could see through the lines, but it wasn't uh, about politics per se. Um, but we have a, a president of the United States now that uh, has become very successful with at least uh, part of the U.S. population uh, expressing uh, reaction to to any news stories that he doesn't uh, like or that that don't uh, uh, follow his line as fake news. And as a result, um, on a national scale, um, I think uh, the fourth estate has been under threat unlike ever uh, in my lifetime. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they, there used to be so much respect for journalists. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you knew that because of the places where you were invited to speak. I was with the Nashville Speakers Bureau for several years. And boy, they would they would have you come, you know, all the way across country just to, to listen to what you have to say. And I I know there there still is that um, interest and and respect from from much of the population. But at the same time, we're under fire right now. 
There's no doubt about it, and that uh, goes all the way up to the White House and the perception that's being put out about the news media that what we're writing is not truthful. And the Washington Post is, is making sure that, um, you know, on the, on the front page of any Internet story you look up, that the truth in journalism is very important, and they won't ever forget that. New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, um, we're reinforce, reinforcing that. And I think, you know, hopefully the, the majority of the population realizes that, but you wonder what impact it's having on younger people. And you wonder, you know, where are these younger people getting their news, if indeed they're even getting it. And, and that's a whole other story that we could spend an entire program talking about, because that's been a, a problem for a while, especially in this Internet age. Um, and, and you talk about how it's changed. You know, I refer to it as the Wild West. You can have somebody sitting in their basement in Ohio or Oklahoma who's uh, in their underwear writing writing stories, and you don't know. A lot of people, I think most of us understand who is a professional journalist, what is a professional um, newspaper or network, and that's the news we get. But so many of these stories that are appearing on Facebook or wherever that these younger people are looking at, you don't know what the source of that information is. It could be coming from Russia, as we have found out in recent months. So the industry um, is under assault, uh, again, unlike any time in my uh, four decades almost of reporting. And, um, and I think the industry itself realizes that. And, uh, and, and I think it's, it's all hands on deck to counter that. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. In a world where impact matters, the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University offers innovative solutions to challenges. It's ranked as the 39th most innovative public service school in the nation, and it's in the top 100 U.S. News and World Report Best Public Affairs Grad Schools. The Voinovich School is a catalyst for regional, state, and national impact in entrepreneurship, energy, and the environment. With 11 full-time faculty members and 60 professional staffers, the Voinovich School partners with nonprofit organizations, governments, and the private sector to solve problems. It's the home of the master's programs in public administration and environmental studies. Students engage in real-world learning and networking to bring their ideas to life. For more information, visit ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. Professional journalists are constrained, and my observation is that they're typically very aware of ethical requirements and legal requirements and standards that have evolved carefully over years and years and years. The Wild West, the, the folks who are just heading to their basement and saying what they think, don't have those kinds of, of limits and standards. So that is scary. But one of the things that makes it particularly scary is it feels like there are whole parts of the country where there isn't much in the way of local news coverage. There isn't much of statehouse coverage. There isn't much of covering Washington as it applies to particular 
areas, and that really hits rural communities. Do you have any thoughts about what smaller communities can do, about what rural areas can do to, to encourage the, the continued existence or maybe a new model for local journalism? Well, I, you know, first of all, let me talk about um, the, the newspapers themselves in smaller communities. There's no doubt that they've been struggling. Many of them now would not be surviving without uh, ads from, from real estate agencies. We get many of our ads in the Rappahannock News uh, from our local realtors um, who are showing off their properties. And, and that helps sustain a newspaper no matter where it is. The oldest daily newspaper in the United States still publishing is in my hometown of Alexandria, Virginia. That newspaper is given away for free now. It used to be called the Alexandria Gazette. Now it's the Gazette Port Packet. Um, that newspaper is given away for free because they're making enough money on the ads, but they don't have enough money to have a circulation department. It's just amazing uh, how things have changed. Um, I often tell people this is my first experience with a local newspaper and working in a local market again since you know the early 1980s, 1980 specifically. And um, you know, I, I tell people when I go out, I've never worried about sales before or ad sales. And, and I tell people even after I interview them or they, they bring something in and they want to get it in the newspaper, which we only have 12 pages, so it's already very tight and limited, please buy an ad. If people buy an ad, that's an extra, maybe two ads, that's an extra page we can get more news in. That's how we're surviving. As far as local communities go and how they can stay involved, um, after the election in November, so many people were surprised at the outcome, obviously. And many people retreated, basically in a state of shock. It was Many people described it as in the wake of the O.J. Simpson verdict many years ago. They just could not believe that this happened. And, and again, I don't want to speak about Democrat, Republican, or take that position, but one thing that, that I did write in this newspaper for those people that were very upset is go back now into your homes, talk to your family, talk to your neighbors, talk to your community leaders, and instead of worrying too much because you won't have much say over it of what goes on in the nation's capital, take your communities back volunteer in your communities, become active in your communities, make that the center of your life where you have some control over what happens. And I think that we're seeing that in Rappahannock County for good and bad. Um, I think some people are taking it to the extreme here, but again, that's, that's more local news and we write about it every day. But, but I think that's very important to, um, to remember where our roots are and control as much as we can about our daily lives. And I think that will get a lot of people through the next, what do we have, three years now of, of an administration. Again, regardless of your politics, it is very controversial and unprecedented in, in how it's structured, how the news is disseminated. Twitter's playing a big role in that. Uh, Donald Trump has realized he doesn't even need to worry about his press office to disseminate his news. He can get it out whenever he wants. Uh, again, another wonderful program. We could, we could spend the entire topic talking about that. But uh, that's, that's what I think. Smaller communities, very important. A newspaper, very healthy for a community. In this community, we have uh, two 
websites uh, that that the citizens themselves have created that they comment on. That gets out of control. We keep it balanced. We go back to those ethics, Bev, that you talked about, that we learned in Journalism 101, the very first class you take. You talk about the ethical guidelines you need to follow as a journalist. And if you're a reporter yourself, you don't take sides and, um, and, and you bring everybody every fact as you know it. As long as you tell the truth, as I was once told, you're safe. When you think about all of the threats and the scariness, but also the compelling need for journalism in the future, what do you say to young people who ask you about whether this is a field that is worth going into? I say by all means go into it because, um, you know, just as recently in the, as the late 1970s, uh, I would come back to Washington, D.C., you know, where, from, from, from my university, and there were no internships really like there are today. There were a few, but not many. And why? Because there weren't the networks. You had the big three networks. CNN basically started... Uh, when I was at the White House, and, and I sat with them in our cubicles um, down in the, the, the in the West Wing in the basement of the press office, and um, you know the, the, you had the big three networks, and you had newspapers in every city. You had to go to a there was a, a small pond, in other words, to get your experience mm-hmm. and move up. Today. There are opportunities. Ten years ago, you're, you know, if you're going in the direction I think, Bev, we were worried ten years ago as an industry. One, we didn't know what the future was, and in many cases we still don't know exactly what the future is. I think we're starting to figure it out more. But there is opportunity. Just from the opportunity side, forget the love of journalism side. For those interested in journalism as a career because they, they think that, that it could be something they could spend their entire lives doing, it, it would be lucrative enough to support a family which is how young people think, uh, maybe get your first house. Um, th- there, are, there are newspapers. Uh, there are, you know, the magazines. Now the prints change. Now it's more online, so you don't see the, the, the you're not holding the publication so much in your hand as you are your, your, your smartphone or your, your iPad. But um, there are networks, broadcast networks. There are radio networks. None of those have disappeared. There are the major newspapers. Washington, D.C. Uh, is filled with opportunity. You know, it used to be if you got to Washington, D.C. as a journalist from another market, you made it. Um, because, again, there, were, there weren't that many opportunities there. The bigger newspapers had maybe a bureau there and then the three networks. And that was about it. Now... Boy, if you look at the list of those I mentioned before, those accredited to the White House, they've got the goofiest names in the world. It could be purpleelephant.com, whatever site that would be. Uh, You know, the goofier names, some some of them have done very well. It's just amazing, the opportunity. So I would encourage uh, uh, students uh, that are thinking about a career to, to pursue journalism and do it in the way that you've discussed, and that is following the ethical guidelines, and, uh, and, and you'll never regret it. It's been the, the, the best career path that, that I, I, if I had anything to change, I don't think I, I would do it. I, I, I would go right back to work the way I did it. Well, one of the things that's been driving your career, and it's evident, is you have what you call the writing bug. I mean, some of us just have to write, whether anybody reads it or not. But people have been reading your work. You mentioned that your first book was uh, 
Inside the Beltway. What else have you written about, and, and are you thinking about another book? Um, you know, I would love to write another book. I would like to bring it local again. I would love to write about this, this unique county uh, that you were a wonderful Chamber of Commerce rep for a little while ago. Um, you know, Rappahannock County, what do we have, 7,000 people here, even though we're only an hour away from the nation's capital. We have beautiful vistas, panoramas, mountains. We have snakes. We have bears. We have coyotes. It's just phenomenal that this place exists. And then there's a wonderful cast of characters that live here from retirees to locals and everything in between. And there's so many stories, humorous, intriguing stories that I think would even uh, a national audience would love to read, especially from the perspective of somebody that came from the nation's capital or the big Washington to the little Washington. One of the stories you've been telling, and it's I think partly you've been sharing it with the community because you have the writing bug, is you've been telling the story of your dog. So in the midst of all of the careful coverage, you've been um, sharing a, a, a rewarding part of your life. Will you just give us a quick glimpse of, of the story you've been writing about, how, how you found Luna and how that is evolving? When I became editor of the Rappahannock News, I noticed that uh, every week, whenever we had the space, we would put a, a dog's mugshot, so to speak, into the paper. They were ready for adoption from our local rescue, which we call Rawl, uh, here in the county. And it's a very small place. Sadly, it's located at the county dump, so they don't have a lot of visitors. They don't have the school children going there like they did when I lived in Alexandria to walk the dogs during the day, because... Frankly, you have to get a ride to the dump to even to even see these dogs. I went down to introduce myself to the woman who's in charge of it. There's only two people there, one part-time. There's only about 15 kennels, and I walked in, and they said, while you're here, would you like to see the dogs? And I walked in, and there was one dog that was out in the run uh, area outside, and uh, there was an immediate connection. I did not go down to adopt a dog. I've had dogs, I know. Uh, how time-consuming they can be, you know, even though they give us more than we can ever give them. And um, two, two or three weeks later, you know, they told me the history of that dog to an extent that it had Lyme disease, it had been picked up, it had been chained outside its entire life, which they figured to be about three years of age. And uh, a couple weeks later, the picture of that dog arrived. Um, so I called them up. I don't know what got into me. I think it was meant to be. And I talked a little bit more about the dog. It was a mixed husky Rottweiler, and uh, I said, I think I want it. And they were shocked, and they said, by all means, it's yours. And so unethically, Bev, uh-huh. uh, I ran the photograph and description of the dog, even though I knew I already had uh, called dibs on her. And she was coughing and choking for the first couple weeks I had her, and it never uh, ceased. So I took her to the vet probably what was her second ever vet visit. Not only did they determine that she was chained up outside, she had had two litters, which I knew, but we found uh, in x-rays a large caliber bullet that was lodged next to her trachea in her neck. And then subsequent x-rays in the next couple weeks found bullet fragments, at least a dozen of them in her skull and jaw area, which was what was causing the problem. There's very little I can do uh, about it. The poor thing is on steroids every day. I'm trying to lower the dose, but nothing else seems to work to keep the swelling down. There would be too many surgeries, like a GI coming back from an IED 
uh, encounter in Iraq, you notice that they will sometimes have six, seven, eight, nine, ten surgeries because you can only do so much slicing uh, into tissue. And it's the same way with this dog, and it would even be difficult to pinpoint all these places. So I have an, an incredible dog, nicest dog in the world that uh, continues to have problems, but has given me so much um, in, since February of 2017. We just got back from four national parks in Canada two weeks ago for my annual vacation with my daughter. And this dog hiked with us the entire way, and she hikes with me here in Shenandoah National Park weekly. And um, hopefully I'm giving her uh, some life back, and uh, hopefully she'll be around for a long time. And you're sharing this story along with the other stories that a, a small-town newspaper can bring to the people, and I think you've got a great following just on, on this little line alone. Well, John, it's been wonderful talking with you today. Uh, you didn't really tell us, though, about your most recent book. I do just want to have you mention that. Sure. Um, I, I wrote the Inside the Beltway book, and then I did a portion of Chicken Soup for the Soul, the uh, series, which was fun. I wrote about my mother and her passing. And then I had a house uh, before I bought my weekend place here. My brother and I had a house on a tiny little island in the Bahamas called Harbor Island. It's an out island uh, in near Eleuthera, off of the coast of Eleuthera, which was oh, 150, 200 miles from Nassau, which was the main tourist island. To get to our island, you had to go by boat. Uh, there's no airstrip. It's only a quarter mile wide by three miles long. And it was a wonderful place to have. It's the old, it was the oldest settlement in the Bahamas, uh, founded in the late 1700s. The house my brother and I owned was actually built in 1800, called Captain's Cottage. I was painting it its uh, quintessential pink turquoise color one day when the realtor on the island, there were no cars on the island. That's how little it was. No mail delivery, no anything. He pulled up and he said, I want you to meet a, a couple on the island. It was one of the few Caucasian couples uh, that, that lived there. And um, my, my realtor, who was also the preacher and the bakery owner, um, took me to this house uh, where I met a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Devine, whose family had been uh, in the Bahamas since the 1600s. They were original buccaneers, not buccaneers. They call them buccaneers. And Jimmy told me some amazing stories as I sat in his kitchen, and I had no idea why I was there, but they were interested in learning more about Barack Obama because that was that era. Who is this guy? Do you think he could ever be president? They were just starving for news, knowing I was from D.C. And I told them everything I knew, and we had a fascinating day drinking rum. And, and uh, Jimmy never, never had a drink. He fixed me plenty of drinks. It turns out he was a teetotaler, never smoked, yet... When I asked him what he did for a living after he told me all these fascinating stories of his life, he looked at his wife, she looked at the real estate agent, Baker, preacher, he looked back at me, and I looked back at Jimmy, and he goes, should I tell him, a beautiful, flowing accent, uh, Bahamian accent, should I tell him? And he told me. And he used to be the biggest drug trafficker between Colombia and the United States through the Bahamas. Throughout the 70s and 1980s, he credits Nancy Reagan uh, in her war on drugs when there was more interdiction that was allowed to go into the Caribbean area from, from Coast Guard Customs for his being indicted. And I did his story. Alex Haley knew him, who wrote Roots, as we all know, and Alex wanted to write a story, but Jimmy 
was still under threat because he turned in a lot of the cocaine dealers. He was strictly marijuana. And uh, during his indictment process, court process, he uh, he uh, basically, I don't, I don't want to disclose too much because I couldn't put too much in the book about it, but there were Colombians that were after him, put it that way. When Alex Haley used to fish with him, Jimmy was his fishing guide after he got back to the Bahamas. And he couldn't do the book then. He let me do the book, and it was called Weed Man, The Remarkable Journey of Jimmy Devine. And it talks about how this Bahamian stumbled into drug trafficking. And it's just a fascinating story. Uh, people root for Jimmy uh, in the book. But the stories are absolutely amazing. They'll, they'll have you laughing. And the book did very well. It was uh, one of the Amazon hot releases uh, I forget if that was part of the National Press Club Book Award or, or if maybe that was inside the Beltway. But anyway, it was a, it, it, it was a fun book to write. It had very little to do with the, the daily grind of uh, reporting the nation's capital, but there is a twist. In the end, Katie Couric reviewed the book and loved it, and Katie Couric uh, pointed out that it will have the official tongues in Washington wagging because uh, I don't go into Mena, Arkansas, and the CIA connection uh, throughout the entire book until the end, but there is one. So it uh, kind of comes back to, to Washington, D.C., and some of the news we're still interested in today. Well, it sounds like another fascinating story. John, you are a storyteller. You certainly do have the writing bug, and I love watching how you're staying in touch with just about all facets of journalism. Thank you so much for um, being with me here today. Bev, it's been great. I appreciate it very much. I love your book, Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO, and I'm still trying to do that. Great, John. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Today we've been talking with John McCaslin, author, journalist, and TV and radio personality, about opportunities and challenges facing journalists today. Today's career tip is about building a career in a world where work lives are evolving rapidly. No matter how fast change is coming, a few basics remain. If you want to create a resilient career, start by building your skills. Learn how to write, read history, and develop the habit of looking at the big picture so you'll always have a sense of how your industry is changing. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO.